sisters in Christ and worship you. Father, you are worthy of extravagant worship. You are so awesome. Father, as we were singing today, we're reminded that when you speak, awesome things happen. And Father, as we look into your word, we pray that you would speak. Speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. Father, we pray that you would give us the grace to receive all that you have in store for us this morning. And I ask that this would be edifying to the body. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, Pastor Tom's series on Revelation has been great, amen? Well, in light of that series, what's on my heart to share this morning is a part two to my last message. Now, the last time I was out, I mentioned how important it is to know where and how the enemy fights in spiritual warfare so that we can overcome his offense. Now, in that message, I shared that scripture identifies three battlefields where we fight the enemy. And the first one is the mind. You know, we learned in that message that the best defense is a good offense and how meditating on things that are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, and praiseworthy leaves the enemy with no room for a foothold or stronghold in our minds. Well, this week we're going to talk about the second battlefield. And Jesus reveals it in Matthew 16, verse 18, where he says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, looking at this verse, we see that even though we have the promise that Satan will not win on this front, the forces of Hades will still come against the church. Now, this makes sense that the enemy will attack the church. Jesus Christ delivered a death blow to the enemy by dying on the cross and resurrecting from the dead. The enemy knows he's defeated. The enemy knows he lost against God. So he's going to attack the next best thing, Jesus' bride, the people who bear God's name, the ones who have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. 1 John 5.19 says, quote, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Now, if the world is under his influence already, then it just makes sense that he's going to come after those who don't belong to him. Now, Jesus shows us the enemy's battle plan in Matthew 12, 25, where he says, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. So the enemy's battle plan on this front is to divide the church because a house divided against itself won't stand. <clears throat> the question is this morning, 
Why is the unity of the church so important in spiritual warfare? Well, unity is important for three reasons. Number one, it's what God wants. It glorifies him. Number two, it's what we as God, God's people want. And number three, it's what the world needs. First, it's what God wants. You know, this is so wonderfully revealed in John 17, verses 21 through 23. Now, before I read this, it needs a bit of an introduction. John 17 is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus prayed this just before he went to the cross. Now, Romans 8.34 says, It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Jesus is constantly praying for us to the Father. He's constantly making intercession for us. If you want to get a glimpse of what his prayers are like for you, just read John 17. It gives us an idea of how Jesus prays for us today. And it reveals his heart and his desire for his people. Now in John 17, verses 20 through 23, it reads, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you and me, that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. See, Jesus is praying just before going to the cross and he's asking the Father that we would enjoy the same unity that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are perfectly in one. So God wants us to be one. Now, I would have thought that this is something that was yet to come, something that we would experience in heaven or in eternity. But we see that this is something that the Lord wants now because he says, quote, that the world may know that you have sent me. So God wants us to be unified. Every good parent wants to see unity amongst their children. How much more does God, as a perfect parent, want his children unified? You know, an example of this is, is my grandmother. She lived to be 101 years old. She had 12 children, and my dad was obviously one of them. Now, when she turned 97, there was a surprise birthday party where the whole family was there except for one of her sons. There was at least 100 people in the room, and the camera was focused on her entry into the room. Now, when she walked in and she saw everyone, the camera zoomed right into her facial expression, 
And you could just see an overwhelming look of delight on her face. She was glowing with a huge smile and tears of joy were streaming down, knowing that her family was together and celebrating her. Now you could see and watch her eyes pan the room and then all of a sudden her face changed dramatically when she said, wait, where's so-and-so? And then you hear a voice in the background said, sorry, Ma, he couldn't make it. And you know, you could see her face filled with disappointment, you know, and, and ache that there was one missing. Seeing her face gave me a glimpse of God's heart for his children. Our father hates division. It's against his own nature. It's against his own character. So he desires unity with, within his family. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21 says, In whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a, a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So God wants to see his house unified. Second, it's what we want. 1 John 1.3 says, That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that our joy may be full. You know, one of the blessings of unity is that our joy would be made full. Psalm 133 verses 1 through 3 expands on this when it says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. You know, there is a place of commanded blessing where the Lord pours out the spiritual blessing of his presence. And that brings renewal. It brings refreshing and life. And that place is where brethren dwell together in unity. Unity is also purifying to the body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 through 19, he said, first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. You know, these factions that Paul is talking about reveals who passes the, a test of genuine faith. This test is actually mentioned in 1 John 3.11, where it says, In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 
You see, John is giving us a test to see if we're generally in the faith. If we love our brothers and sisters, then that's a sign that we're walking in the light. It's also necessary for our maturity. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, verse 16 continues, from whom the whole body joined and knitted together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. All right, that's a mouthful. But what these verses are saying is that if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, then you have at least one spiritual gift. Some have two, some have more, but everyone who has the Holy Spirit has at least one spiritual gift. The purpose of that gift is to use it in the church to edify the body of Christ. It's the only reason why you have it, is to edify the body of Christ. So in order for me to mature and grow in the faith, I need you to mature and grow. I can't grow without you. If we all do our part, and we all supply our gift by what every joint supplies, then we'll all grow and mature together. Now, we all know that the closer we get to each other, iron sharpens iron. And in that, the sparks are going to fly. And that's why Paul wrote in the same chapter, he writes in Ephesians 4.2, he says, With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And you know, that's difficult, especially when there's conflict. But the stakes are high. We need each other to grow. And when we fight for our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're ultimately helping ourselves. Now, as children of God, we want more of Christ manifested in our lives. We want to mature in the faith. This will only come through unity. So for renewal, purification, growth and maturity, these are all sources of joy. And that's what we want. Third, unity is important because it's what the world needs. You know, Jesus gives us his plan for evangelism in John 17 when he prays that the world may know that you have sent me. See, God's people to draw others to himself is through our unity. Pastor Matt Chandler said, 
in the first 30 years of the church, the first 30 years of the church, the body of Christ grew by a minimum of 33% each year. Now he mentioned in those first 30 years, you're not going to find any writings on how to evangelize or strategies for evangelism or effective ways of sharing the gospel. You won't see those writings. But he said what you will find are stories and testimonies of how the Christians loved each other. One such account came from a gentleman named Caesar Hatrian. He was a spy for the Roman emperor during the Roman persecution. His report said, quote, They love one another, and he who has gives to him without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there is among them any that are poor and needy, and if they have no food to spare, they will fast two or three days in order to supply the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people, and there's something divine in their midst. You see, the hostile world looked upon these people who had a peculiar love for each other, and others wanted to experience that. The church grew by a minimum of 33% each year. Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 47 says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So when we stand together in unity, it's not only proof of salvation, but it also proves something else that the world needs to see. And that's in Philippians 1, verses 27 through 28, where it says that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. So our unity is not only a declaration of salvation to the world, but it's also a declaration of judgment that's coming for those who are outside the faith. Francis Chan, in his book, Until Unity, wrote that he's concerned that the church in America has abandoned God's way of evangelism for our own way. He said, unity is much too hard and difficult, so the church in America wants what's more efficient, what's faster, what's easier, what's more convenient. So we've traded God's way in adopting and adopting our own strategies, our own ways of doing God's work. God's way has always been through our love for one another. 
Now, as we see in Scripture, our unity is what God wants. It glorifies him. It's what we want, and it's what the world needs to see. And the enemy is so shrewd to divide the church. It's an attack on the glory of God. It's an attack on the body and bride of Christ. And it keeps the world in darkness. Now, it seems as if the enemy has many victories on this front. We have so many things working to divide us. There's apathy, politics, culture, busyness. You know, as Pastor Tom pointed out a few weeks ago, there's YouTube where people are disconnecting from each other out of convenience, out of lack of desire. You know, in my lifetime, I've never seen so much division in the church as I do today. So the question is, how do we fight on this front? Well, just like we learned in our minds, the best defense is a good offense. And our first offense comes from Ephesians 5.30, where it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. You see, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. When we disobey God and we sin, there's a grieving that takes place. Now, if we as the body of Christ have one spirit, and that spirit lives in us, and that spirit longs to see Jesus Christ's prayer answered that we would be one, then there ought to be a grieving taking place inside of us over the state of the church. If not, we need to go to God and ask that our hearts would want what he wants and what he's constantly praying for. So the first step is to identify the Holy Spirit's conviction. Second, it's to repent for any attitudes, words, apathy, or actions towards divisiveness. You know, do we actually look at our brothers and sisters from other churches and say, ah, we don't need them. We don't need them. We're fine without them. When we drive past other churches, do we pray for the leadership? Do we pray for the maturity of our brothers and sisters in other churches? Do we gossip against each other, try to create division within our cliques and relationships? Pastor Matt Chandler shared a story about a particular congregant that wanted to get a rise out of him. The congregant came up to him and said, man, have you heard about the theology in that church down the street? Well, the congregant was hoping that the pastor would expand on that and continue the rant. But instead, Pastor Chandler said, oh, you mean our brothers and sisters down the street? They, they might be weak in that area, but boy, those guys know how to do worship really well. They are very good at surrendering their hearts to the Lord. They know how to do worship. You know, the congregant was silenced. Now, that's not to put down theology. We all know that theology is important, and not all churches are going to be strong there. But other parts of the body have other areas that they excel in, 
And we need to recognize that because we need that strength. So we would need to turn from apathy or critical or even the attitude of we don't need them, they're awful, we've got it right kind of mindset or move away from anything that would stir our hearts away from what God wants. The third offense we see in Scripture is in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, where it says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you. Now, before we go further, this could be confusing. So what John is saying is that he's, a, he's about to give a commandment. It's a commandment that's been around for a while. So it's not anything new. But there's a new way about this commandment. There's an upgrade in the quality of this commandment. Same commandment, but now there's an upgrade. So in verse 9 through 11... He continues with the commandment. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness. Now the offense here, the offensive on the battlefront is to love the body of Christ. Now, to understand what this love is, John says it's new. It's a new commandment because it's upgraded in its quality. The commandment was originally to love others the way you wanted to be loved. So you would look at yourself and, and identify all the things that you would want and then go and do the same to others. But the upgrade here is to love each other the way Jesus loves us, to lay down our lives for each other. Jesus himself said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's a huge difference. Now we look at Jesus, and then we go and do the same to each other. It's a new way. But to define this further, we also need to understand and identify what the word hate means to God. God's definition of hatred is much different than our own definition of hatred. Romans chapter 9 verse 13 says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now this was even before they were born, even before they had the chance to do anything God loved Esau, or God loved Jacob, and he hated Esau. Well, what's God's definition of hatred? We get a glimpse of it in Proverbs 13, 24, where it says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. So taking these verses together, it means God's hand was actively working for Jacob's benefit. It was actively involved for Jacob's benefit through discipline, through blessing, 
and by being actively connected to and engaged in. As opposed to Esau, God's gracious hand was pulled back and Esau was left to himself. Esau was left to his own choices, his own wants, his own desires, his own life. God decided to be actively involved in and connected to Jacob's life as a loving father and decided to be disconnected from Esau and hold back his hand of grace. So in God's eyes, to hate means to withhold blessing. To withhold blessing. Now in the same way, what John is saying is that if our only connection to the church is at a distance, there's no relationships, there's no connection, there's nothing there. Or if it's just on YouTube, just out of convenience, that's not love. In fact, to not be engaged with blessing and what God is doing in the body of Christ is hatred. And John is saying, if you hate your brother, you walk in darkness. Now, to understand this further, 1 John 3, 11 through 12 says, For this message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, in defining love, why is Cain in there? Cain murdered his brother. Well, John isn't saying that in order to love, don't kill anybody. If you don't kill anybody, you're all set. You're good there. That's not what John is saying. Cain is mentioned because he was resentful that his brother succeeded in an area that he failed in. The contrast between Abel's success and goodness and Cain's falling short made Cain angry enough to create the greatest distance that could ever exist, and that's death. So what John is saying is that love is glad and rejoices when a brother or sister are succeeding, even if that success isn't yours directly. Even if you happen to be failing in that particular area, love rejoices when someone else is succeeding. Pastor John Piper wrote, there is a deep impulse in a believer to die to self so that others may have life and life abundantly. We want to see others prosper, even if it costs us our own life. We know it's okay to make sacrifices because of his abundant care for us. Because we are so connected in Christ, a victory for somebody else in the body of Christ is a victory for the whole body, for everyone. A simple but great example of this that I will never forget came on our very first service here as a church. You know, years ago, we used to worship at the Christian Center. Many of you know that as Stop, Hop, and Roll today. And to do that, meant we had to go there early on a Sunday morning. We had to set up the chairs, set up the sanctuary, set up the stage. And then after the service, we had to break it down. And that was every Sunday. We did that week after week after week. We really needed our own church building. Well, when one thing led to another where we were able to purchase this building. 
And we were all like super excited to have our, our own Sunday school rooms, you know, and our own colors on the wall. And it was our church building. It was exciting. But before our first service, a person came in with a beautiful bouquet of flowers and put them on our communion table. And there was a card. And the card said, quote, congratulations on getting your own church building. We want you to know that we are celebrating with you. Love your brothers and sisters at the First Assembly of God. You know, they celebrated our success. What would that be like if we celebrated each other's success instead of competing or instead of separating and just forgetting about the other parts of the body? You know, this was a very special season for the body of Christ in our own community. You know, it seemed like God was screaming this message from every corner and nook and cranny of our entire nation. There were so many ministries that rose up at this time. They rose up independently of each other, but they all rose up at the same time, and they were saying the same thing. Some of you might remember Promise Keepers, Moms in Touch, See You at the Poll for the Teens, March for Jesus, Concerts of Prayer, Prayer Walk USA. All these ministries came up at one time, and they were all saying the same thing. Love one another and bring that love beyond church walls into your community. And there was a commanded blessing from God that came upon his body. We were having quarterly communion services together on Sunday nights, and we rotated from church to church. The Tri-States Pregnancy Center was birthed out of this unity. Our dear Rose Orski got saved at a March for Jesus when she saw the love that existed for God and for each other. And out of that unity came a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel with over 6,000 people in Port Jervis at an event at our local high school. It was such a special time for the body of Christ, and there's so many other blessings that I don't have time to get into that came out of this unity. It was a special blessing a commanded blessing from God. So to love one another means we connect in such a way to offer a blessing. We don't withhold blessing from each other. God loved us in such a way that he died for us, his enemies. We were foreigners. We were strangers. We were outcasts. And now we are adopted, accepted, beloved children of God. Through the gospel, we've been given a radical love. And it's through the gospel that we can have the power to love one another. And it's a command that we need to take very seriously. And that love comes in the form of holding each other accountable, edifying each other, stirring each other up for good works, standing together to withstand the forces of hell, celebrating each other's successes, and carrying each other's burdens. 
Fourth, we need to trust that God will answer his own prayer. You know, when we look at the state of the church in our country, it looks like it would never happen. There's so many things to divide us. I mean, in recent years, we've had COVID. The woke movement has created a lot of splits and divisions. Seems like this will never happen. But consider what Jesus did amongst his first disciples. If you were to pick 12 people to teach and to train to lead the church after he left, wouldn't you pick people of like mind so that we could all be on the same page? It's not what he did. First, he picked Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was a Jew, a citizen of Israel. So the, to be a tax collector meant you were actually working for the enemy. You were taking money from, from the Jewish people and giving it to the enemy who would pay for soldiers that were oppressing you. To be a tax collector meant you didn't care about your fellow Jew and you're actually on the enemy's side. Then Jesus picked Simon. Simon was a zealot. Now a zealot was a person in the religious sect that believed and practiced in 100% strict obedience. They believed in, in living according to every detail and piece of the law. Now because of their high level of obedience, they believed that God was going to usher in his kingdom through them. They believed that so much that they carried daggers in their cloaks. And when they actually saw a Roman citizen, they would kill him. They were certain that the Lord would use them to bring in the kingdom. So how do you think Matthew and Simon got along? Then in Luke 22, the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest, who's the best, who's going to be top. Jesus' first church had intense division. Yet we know a unity and a love was created that shook the world. The church of Philippi was another example. The church of Philippi started with three people. Acts 16, 14 said, quote, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Person number one is a rich businesswoman from Asia. Person number two is in Acts 16, 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. So person number two was Greek, poor, slave, demon possessed, and young. Person number three, Paul and Silas were in prison singing and the prison walls shook and the jailer came, Paul spoke with him and said in Acts 16.31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So the jailer and his family were saved that night. So person number three is a Roman blue-collar jailer. They had nothing in common, but they started the church at Philippi, which became known as a church of great maturity. See, the Lord is faithful, and we need to trust that he will create the oneness that
that he prayed for. Lastly, we need to focus on what we have in common. Paul shows us this in his rebuke to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 13. And he says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, what Paul is saying is that we ultimately belong to Christ, and the focus and goal is his glory. Jesus prayed this in John 17, where he says, And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. You know, to glorify God simply means to make a big deal about Jesus, to put who he is, his excellency, his splendor, to put that on display and make a big deal about it. When that is our passion and focus, all of the lesser things and contentions fade. It's the glory of Christ pursued that united a Simon and Matthew. It's the glory of Christ pursued that united a slave girl, a rich businesswoman, and a blue-collar jailer. There is nothing else more worthy of an endeavor than to glorify God. You know, when you think of all that God is and to know that you belong to him, that is a cause to rejoice in. In our love and unity, we can see a clear picture of Jesus, and that's a taste of heaven. You know, the more we desire to see Christ made much of, the more we have the desire to have his glory manifested, the more we desire to present the gospel to a lost world, the more you're going to see God connecting his people. So the offensive in this battlefield is grieve with the spirit over the current condition of the church. Repent for any apathy or ways that you've withheld blessing from the body of Christ. Love your brother and sister in Christ. Trust that God will do only what he can do. Pursue the common mission of glorifying Christ and agree with Jesus in prayer. Our country and our world is really falling apart. And even worse, the media, you see it in the media headlines, Christianity's in decline. People are becoming unchurched, going more with YouTube and service uh, separated from the body. Division is rampant. And we know in the end times, the Bible says the love of many will grow cold. The world is going to need to see real, authentic love. And the enemy, knowing Jesus' words, a house divided against itself will not stand. The enemy's hard at work to keep God's house divided. God is glorified in our unity. We want it for our joy, and the world needs to see it 
so that many will believe. This is a war, but praise God that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, I look at my own life, Lord, as, uh, as messed up as it is and, and even was before I became a Christian. Lord, as messed up as I am, Lord, you decided to love me and to draw me in, to accept me, to make me more like Christ, to change me more and more each day. Lord, it is good to be in your house. And that's a work that you're doing in each and every one that belongs to you. And Father, we pray that you would make us one, as you are one with the Father. You and the Father, the Father in you, and us in you. Lord, we, we thank you for the joy that's ours, Lord, because of it. And Lord, we pray that you would do a work in, in your church so that the world would believe. Bless us with this, Lord, we pray, that the world could look and see that Jesus is alive and well, and the church is alive and well. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Please stand to receive the Lord's blessing.